Country Life on Midlands 103. Brought to you by W. Orshaw Burlington Business Park Tullamore. Supplier of New Holland's tractors in the Midlands. Worshaw.ie. Good evening and welcome to Country Life here on Midlands 103. It's MJ Cleary with you for the next hour. Bring you latest from the Midlands and further afield from the worlds of agriculture, food and agribusiness. Now seven days since I was speaking to you all last. As usual, the seven days don't be long going. And uh, thank you all for joining me and listening in this evening for the course of the next hour. Uh, Weather-wise, over the course of the last week, unsettled is the way to describe it at the moment. Uh, Definitely colder over the last couple of days and more of the same for the coming week. Cool and unsettled is what Met Aaron tells us. So this coming week, we'll see much of the stock around the country housed with land very, very wet everywhere. A far earlier winter than we would have liked, but... As we say, we can't beat the weather, so it is what it is for the time being, and uh, we have to go with it. A Chagas fodder report announced as well today that up to 25% of farms could be short of feed this year. So, look, not good news in relation to that, but uh, early days, and we will see how it plays out. But definitely easier of cattle in now at the moment, especially if fields are waterlogged. Uh, now, this week, next Tuesday night, sees Halloween upon us. So we have a flavouring of Samhain on the programme this evening. And we will be speaking to a couple of different people in relation to Halloween. Pharmaphobia is one of the people we'll be talking to. We'll be speaking to Deirdre Murta. She is behind this huge event. It takes place in County Mead. This is a really, really impressive event. I have to say it's a spooktacular experience that happens on a working farm. <laughs> oh, I wonder what that was, where that came from. Deirdre Murta will join me later to chat about this very interesting farm business. Well, look, we do lots of farm businesses on the programme, people who've diversified into maybe accommodation or selling direct from the farm. But this is the first time we have uh, spoken to anyone uh, doing something of this nature and indeed of this magnitude. It caters for children, teenagers and adults alike. It's on the go over 20 years and it has five scare zones all set up in sheds around the farm from zombies to clowns. There's something to frighten everybody. Stay tuned to hear how to book and what the background to this hugely original business is. Sticking with our Halloween theme, as I mentioned, Samhain is the celebration that our Celtic ancestors ensure to honour at this time of the year. It's about embracing the dark and remembering our departed. Almost all of our current practices stem from customs of old. So when you're lighting a bonfire, eating a slice of barring brack, carving a pumpkin or eating fruit and nuts. Stay tuned to hear how these traditions have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Clodagh Doyle from the Country Life Museum in Castlebar, County Mayo will join me later to chat about this and also give you some of the ideas, I should say, on how to ward off unwanted spirits this Halloween. <laughs> With more regular farming issues, Ewan Mullins from Chagas will join me later to chat about Bioeconomy Ireland Week where Chagas are asking tillage farmers or farmers in general indeed to look at growing alternative crops that may not be used to. The research shows that beans will be a profitable crop this year. However, it's one that most farmers know very little about. With more on that later, stay tuned. And Ewan Mullins from Chagas will be talking about protein crops that Chagas are asking farmers to consider growing. As always, text the show with your comments, thoughts or questions to 083 30 10 103. Be happy to bring to our guests this evening. Now, we are starting this evening with some news about a solar farm in County Offaly. We have Stephen Robb, the man in the know from the Irish Farmers Journal on the line. Stephen, many thanks for taking my call this evening. Hey, MJ, good to be here. 
Uh, 97-acre solar farm gets approval in County Offaly, uh, Stephen. That's as of uh, today or the last couple of days. Irish developer Elgin Energy Services has been given the go-ahead to build a 97-acre solar farm in Offaly. This is a big, big, big uh, piece of ground. It's going to be covered with panels, uh, Stephen. And it seems to be that this is the way now in Offaly especially. This is the maybe second or third large solar uh, farm that's after getting approval. Yes, certainly, MJ. I mean, it's been a it's been a busy few months for for Offaly County Council. That's for sure. Um, I suppose the latest uh, solar PV development to to get permission uh, from Offaly County Council, as you said, was from a company called Elgin Energy Services, Dublin based. Um, would have a number of projects uh, in development around the country. As you said, ninety seven acres um, worth of panels producing about twenty three megawatts of uh, electricity. Um, in, in terms of capacity, that's enough to power about 15,000 homes annually or look, it's going to run for, for about 40 years at the operational lifetime of this project. So they're estimating it'll uh, save around 900,000 tonnes of CO2 over the, the uh, lifetime of the project. So look, as you said, solar farms are becoming more and more common um, right, or, right across the country and uh, especially around, around Offaly and those Meath and, and Cork would kind of be a few more hotspots as well. Um, from a from a farmer's perspective, um, typically what you're seeing is very attractive uh, land lease options, um, and that's I suppose really what's what's enticing them to, to engage with solar PV developers. And the vast vast majority of these developments, I should say, are are by specialised developers, and they're really just leasing the land off the farmers. On average, farmers could be look. They could be getting anything between a thousand and twelve hundred euro an acre for that forty-year period um, each year uh, in land rent. So, look, it is quite attractive um, from that point of view. Um, elsewhere, I suppose off around Offaly, uh, we recently saw plans going for a two hundred seventeen-acre solar farm um, by uh, Offaly Solar Energy Limited. Um, that solar farm is actually planned for fairly close to Lockborough Discovery. Uh, park. There's really good good connection capacity um, in that part of the world and as well as that over Kilcormick direction we would have actually seen um, plan permission granted for a for a 140 hectare solar farm so well over 300 acres um, by uh, Harmony Solar Offline Limited. So this this industry is developing and it's developing fast and um, these projects have been in the planning system for Probably the guts of a year, but have been planned and have been in development. We'll say for for considerably longer than that. And um, we're going to see a lot more. Um, this is the government's target at eight gigawatts worth of solar PV on the system um, by 2030, and we're well well on our way uh, towards achieving that. With the amount of solar PV that's uh, being mooted, uh, Stephen, and what the, the government wants, these figures that are being paid per annum for a lot of this would be margin land, €1,200. Can these companies, like, is it not in their business model to try and purchase um, tracts of land for these? It, it's a solely leasing model. It doesn't make massive financial sense if they're going to pay that for the lifetime of it, maybe, what, 25, 30 years, and paying 30000 an acre. That's a, a really interesting question, um, and the, 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 mod, the answer is no. That they're they're not, by and large they're not considering it. Look, I suppose that could be for a number of reasons. Um, solar PV developments are they're low margin schemes. Or they're a low margin enterprise, um, and securing capital can securing capital can be, can be a challenge considering that the margins are, are relatively low. So. 
if you were to add in uh, an up upfront you know lump sum payment and to actually purchase the land on top of that it could quite call into question the uh, financial viability of the project but also look from a sheer logistics point of view many of these solar farms are crossing multiple uh, landowners and there could be you know, some of the bigger projects could be upwards of 20 landowners involved in a, in a single development so that's a lot of land to to try and purchase um, in a country where we really don't like letting go of land so I suppose it's a lot more uh, amenable and you'll, you'll probably progress faster with the, the land lease option um, and that was the same not just for solar PV far, uh, development, it was the same for wind farm development as well, it still is in Ireland. But I was in Denmark um, about three weeks ago, um, visiting a number of farms over there, and we also spoke to a number of uh, developers. And interestingly enough, in, in the Danish wind market, they were real, the real pioneers uh, you know, ahead of, ahead of the game when it came to wind farm development. That model's actually changing now. They're trying to move away from that land lease option to, to actually purchasing the land outright. Um, so that look, it could be an indication of things to come. I, I can't see it happening anytime soon, certainly not in this decade, probably not in the next. Um, but, you know, we'll never say never. Uh, for farmers, Stephen, who maybe approach, is important to take into consideration, I believe, and I'm open to correction on this, but if land is leased on one of these large long-term leases at that kind of money, it moves into uh, commercial territory and there's going to be issues then in transferring to the next generation. Am I correct in that? Yeah, you, you are. Um, look, I suppose anyone who has been approached by a developer, I can't go without saying that you have to get sound legal and taxation advice um, of which there's there's you know there, there are a number of really uh, good bodies who can help you out there with it, um, but generally you will have to keep the total solar farm area uh, below fifty percent of your total land area uh, to still avail of all of your your release um, when transferring the farm or when when availing of retirement relief or or anything along those lines. Um, so that that, that relief uh, mechanism is was in place for a number of years now so basically the figure is less than 50% of your farm can go to panels without it affecting you which is actually really really attractive but you know, it's funny you should interesting you should bring that up because there's a really intensive lobby going on by, by the solar industry and also by members of the Green Party as well who are arguing um, that that threshold should be increased so farmers should be allowed to um, put more panels on their land up to maybe 60, 70, 80%, 100% of their land and still be able to avail of those reliefs. Um, and they're saying that this would be a bit of a, an easy one to increase the size of solar farms in an existing area. Um, but I, I can't see that happening um, because the, the purpose of the relief is to ensure that you know the majority of the farm is still farmed, the majority of the farm is still in, in farmland. Now, I'm not saying that land under panels can't, the can't be farmed. It can. It's a big graze. It's a graze by sheep by and large. But it's just it's not as intensively farmed as 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 conventional farmland. So that's the whole point on that relief. It's to protect that in you know, a farming structure and and to maintain it. And I, I can't see that changing anytime soon. Anyway.
Yeah, interesting times in relation to solar, Stephen, no question about it. Just before you go, a piece in last week's uh, Farmer's Journal where you were at a, a conference last week and uh, Marie Donnelly, she's the Climate Change Advisory Council, the chair of it, and she gave a pretty scathing review to the government. She said, in relation to what they're planning, it's good to have targets in place. Uh, the country lacks many of the key policies needed to actually implement and deliver on these targets. Uh, that's uh, shooting straight from the hip there. And look, she's she's probably bang on. The uh, the plan for all this, this biomethane by 2030, sure, realistically, it's pie in the sky. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, it was it was refreshing to hear her say it, to be honest. It was at the Irish Bioenergy Association conference. She was speaking to a room of experts in, in the renewable energy field. We all know that a lot of these targets are 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 going to be very difficult to achieve um, and are going to take a lot of effort to do that and a lot of policy changes to do that. And we're just not seeing these policy changes and incentives come in place fast enough. Um, we all know that, and it was refreshing to hear her say that because she's relaying the message up to up to the government um, that they're just not doing enough, fast enough, to, to come anywhere close to meeting the targets, which they have set. I, I, I see a target... I see it, not, not stopping, but just uh, as you mentioned a target, I see a, a target in front of me and it's uh, 150 to 200 anaerobic AD plants to be built by 2030. But uh, their strategy on this, uh, their paper on it, has been delayed until uh, next year. So <laughs> they're kicking kicking the, the ball down the line another number of months and uh, we're going to be in 2024 then. And sure, we know, we know ourselves any type of building work two, three, four years is, is nothing really. So it's, uh, it's, it, it is, it's one of those ones. It's a bit farcical really. It, it is. Now, the, the biomethane target, uh, that, that really is farcical considering that, yep, the biomethane strategy has been delayed but off that strategy there's going to be a list of actions and those actions are going to have uh, a timeline to be implemented so realistically by the time that we see any tangible benefits come off the back of the, the actions from the strategy it's going to be 2025 2026 will we see a support scheme in place by 2026 it's very questionable uh but then that's that's on the policy end but actual project development end for for a farmer considering going into AD to develop a project themselves you're really chatting about realistically three to four years before from from project conception, by the time you get your head around everything, by the time you you decide your site, you decide the size, scale, appoint the planner, secure the finance to actually submit the planning application, go through the planning application process, consult with all your neighbours, probably end up going to onboard Panala, work through onboard Panala, um, you're you're chatting years, so yeah, and that's before a shovel is even in the ground to actually build one of these facilities, which is going to take two years to build and commission. So uh, and then uh, and then you're going to have to get your hands on uh, on the silage to feed into it. That's a story for <laughs> that's a story for another day, Stephen. Last question, Stephen. Just these large solar farms then that are popping up around off your planning is going in for them. How long do we think they take from planning getting approved to actually power going into the grid? What sort of period of time are you talking? Yeah, it's 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 a good question, I suppose. Um look you could you could see a decision made within a within a solar planning application within maybe three to four months and that's mm. factoring in a request for further information. If it goes to the board, if it's appealed to the board and um, by third party or by the developer, you're probably chatting about another year, year and a half, possibly two on top of that. Um that's the that's the time consuming part. you can actually you'll you'll actually be able to construct the project relatively quickly, um, probably about maybe five months or so, um, I'm estimating. 
Uh, and then it really depends on, on the EFB or a version of air grid, depending on getting that grid connection and getting that energised. Um, so look, again, you could be chatting maybe two, three years. Yeah, it's um, it is it is still a it's a it's a reasonable amount of time, I suppose, in comparison to the to the biomethane. Like it's it's workable, and as you said, if 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 things go uh, streamlined and a bit more straightforward, it could be even sooner than that. But look, it seems to be seems to be where it's at at the moment. Stephen, I'm going to have to let you go. I'm going to say many thanks for joining me here on the program. Great run down there. We'll chat you again on the show. Thanks, MJ. Uh, Stephen Robb there from the Farmer's Journal and uh, that as Stephen said is the third uh, solar farm that's been given approval in County Offaly and uh, if you are approached Stephen gave some very good advice there and that is to get really really sound legal and tax advice is the big one you want there you want really really good tax advice and find out exactly what these big figures could mean for you now just before I go to the break I have to give a special mention to a little lady in our house who is going to be one year old on Friday Miss Maya Maeve Cleary Maya's going to be one on Friday hard to believe a full year since she came and it's uh, I wouldn't say it's flown by <laughs> with, a, with a newborn baby but uh, she has really come into her own the last couple of months a uh, little pixie as I call her she always has a big smile on her face and she's always in good form and her big brother Jack is three and a half in about a week's time and he's very very good to her so Jack and Maya I'm saying hello and we have a big day coming up also for Jack big day for Jack on Friday because it is his first Halloween costume that he's going to wear now Peter Rabbit is what was being mooted for a while uh, to go to play school on Friday but last week he just threw a bit of a curveball at us and he said he wants to dress up as a butterfly so that seems to be where we're at now at the moment unless things change by Friday and in the world of a toddler who knows but uh, big hello to uh, Maya and Jack and happy birthday to Maya coming up on Friday now going to a break and we are going to be speaking about Halloween after the ad break Claude Doyle from the Country Life Museum will be joining us and I'm just I'm hearing some strange sounds in here around the studio so hopefully uh, a ghoul hasn't come in around me here over the course of the last few minutes <laughs> Country Life on Midlands 103 brought to you by W. Orshaw Burlington Business Park Tullamore supplier of New Holland's tractors in the Midlands worshaw.ie and you're welcome back to Country Life here on Midlands 103. Now, Claude Doyle from the very well-named museum, the Country Life Museum in County Mayo, joins me on the line. Claude, many thanks for taking my call this evening. Yeah, thanks a million, MJ. Perfect name for your programme. Absolutely. A, a synergy is what we would say. The, the Festival of Samhain, yeah. uh, Claude, is almost upon us. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about for the next few minutes. Look, how important was this to our Celtic ancestors, tell us? Oh, it's really important. I suppose, in fact, it was their new year. So they were starting the year. So they started with the dark half of the year and finished with the latter part of the summer, the lighter half of the year. So it was really important to them and it was a really important festival. And it's it's kind of a... It's, we still have so many of the aspects of the festival, like, you know, bonfires and different things. It's kind of like saying you know, we're here and like we'll lighten, brighten up this darkness, you know. So there's a lot of kind of um, aspects to the festival, the kind of the darkness. And then you've got the death and association with death and your ancestors who've died or gone before you. So there's a, it's a very important festival. And it's kind of now, you know, we talked before about the fact that the Catholic Church would the church always found it easier to make sure that people converted if they put festivals and feast days um, 
right at the time where people were feasting and had festivals anyway. So that's why we have the 1st of November as um, All, All Saints Day. And that's why we call it Halo or Halloween, the evening before All Saints Day is the 31st of October. And then you tie in the 2nd of, of November. Sorry, the 2nd of November then is All Souls. So you've got that, the, the, the kind of, you know, um, like in other countries, it's like the Festival of the Dead, you know. So And we do the same. So we were thinking of all the people who've died, you know. So you're kind of mixing a few things in and it's all kind of come together around sound. And in times gone by, sort of when we're talking about the people who have passed on, was it a time where people who had passed on were remembered or now we have a feel of Halloween, a scary, spooky um, ghouls and ghosts. Were were people genuinely afraid at this time of year? I think they would. And I think in fairness, I think anyone would be afraid when there's no electricity in the countryside, you know, (laughs) like everything is scary when there's very little light and you've got poor light, even for houses. So so there was a lot of things that people believed. First off, they weren't scared of their own ancestors and there was a welcome back to the home. It's the belief that on this night that the spirits of the dead might return and, you know, and they'd be made welcome in their home. And then, but then the knowledge that people were, the knowledge that people might be on the move, you know, kind of led other people to mess around with that idea and start, you know, scaring the living daylights out of people, you know, and knowing that, like, they're they're expecting to meet people. And then there was also a belief that the fairies were around and they were moving between their summer abode and their winter one. And sure, they could take you into their their ring fort and you'd never be seen. You'd be abducted by the fairies, you know. And, you know, a lot of people believed in the puka, which was another, which was another thing, the puka. And he was like, he was a mythical kind of um, uh, guy that like, kind of, um, what was he? He was like, he was basically a spirit that's traveling through the countryside and he could whip you up. He'd be galloping by and could, Take, take you for a ride on his back and but then they, there was also that belief that he was urinating on all of the berries and things that were left so that children wouldn't eat them um, the, after Halloween because they wouldn't be good um, so so yeah there was a lot going on a lot of like a lot of Lot of, that's where the mask and tradition comes and that running around and you know trying to scare people because they just know that it's a scary night for spirits and different things on the move. And as I said at the start of the programme, Claudia, that uh, pretty much everything we do now has its base in a custom of old. One of those that we still have, it's, I wouldn't say lost a little people and children are still very familiar with it, probably not as big as it was, is the, the Bahrain Brack. Uh, this was a big, big yeah. one back in the day for Halloween. It's still around, it's still there, but uh, depending yeah. on what you pulled from your Bahrain Brack, this was going to give you an indication of what life was going to bring you yeah because you see i suppose every time there's a quarter day like a kind of the the first day of every season really people believed very traditional around may time as well but there's a sense of you can foretell the future around these times it's like you're not it's that liminal time between one season and another season so people believed like i'll be able to tell the future around that halloween time you know and that they're they they sort of 
believed you might dream about the man you marry or, you know, there's certain things you might do. But certainly the barn back was one where they put loads of things in the cake and it didn't, you got something. Nowadays, like when you go to Little Arousey, you buy the, the barn back and it does have a ring. So they even considered, they suit our traditions. You wouldn't find that across, the, you know, Europe. Like So I think it's interesting, but we were ringing it now and that means if you've got the ring, you know, you would get married. You were, you were, yeah, you were, look, you were looking yeah. good for a, a life of you matrimony. Were good. I, and, I, I see and in front know, of you. have a lot of winter nights now, you know, so you have a lot of sitting in and you have very little work to do, so you wouldn't mind getting courting. You no, know, you were happy, you're happy enough. But however, if you got a, a, a button uh, as a male, you were going to be a bachelor. That wasn't great. If you got a no, rag, I, yeah. it looked like poverty. Uh, a coin poverty. was wealth and a crucifix yeah. The taking up of a religious order. Religious orders. Mm. Yeah. yeah, hugely and interesting. And then there was even there was even a thimble for you'll be a spinster all your life, and you know that was frowned on. Bachelordom and spinsterdom was kind of frowned on because you weren't really like you know you weren't contributing to the community, and uh, you weren't you know the town might die if you if you're if you're not getting get married and stuff, you know. So um, so then there was also, sometimes there was a little stick put in it and it was like that your spouse will beat you. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, that's not the one people are, are going to pull. Uh, one that it does link into though, the Barrying Brack, it links into the whole area of fortune telling. And again, this is something around Halloween. We often see the images of the old school gypsy fortune teller and this kind of spookiness, the eeriness of it all, telling the future and the um, linking yeah. to spirits. But this is something that was around for a, a long, long, long time. And an interesting one I was reading in your little blog here is where people used to leave out bowls in front of them yeah. with uh, with different items in each bowl. You were blindfolded yeah. and depending on what you got, it, again, it indicated your future. Yeah, exactly. So if you put your hand in, somebody mixed around the bowls and if you put your hand in, you it got wet, then you were travelling overseas and if you put it in with kind of grain or rice or something there, not rice, but, you know, some sort of meal, then you were going to be hale and hearty and live a long life and but if you put it in with clay and the, you were going to die soon so not not so good you know mm. your chances weren't so positive you know but the, even weather divination was very important around now so even people looking at the, the moon they'd be looking at the you know they'd be looking for what things meant and they would you know if there was a moon on that night they they you know if it was clear it meant fine weather if it was clouded there was a degree that, you know, a certain degree would foretell uh, the, the kind of proportion of rain. And if there was clouds racing over the moon, it was really going to be storms to come, you know. And people were also looking, like today, they're just looking at the floodwaters. They're testing the waters of the rivers around this time because foretelling, when they want to find, you know, an omen to tell them of winter floods or, you know, what... And, you know, a plough coulter, they believe sometimes that another stick should be used as a mark on a riverbank to see whether it's rising and if floods are coming, you know. so. But in terms of the, the produce and the farm, I think it's very similar to what's happening now in the last few weeks. You know, it's like in the past, people just got, they were gathering in all their crops. This was, you, t- you 
locking yourself up and hibernating really but if you had all of the crops would be in and you know your corn your hay potatoes turnips apples everything is stored ricks of hay would be well tied down you know the dry cattle and sheep would be brought in and from you know distant places and kept closer to the farm and then you know you'd be putting your milk cows into like the into sheds nearby and so it was very important that you got everything done your turf your wood your like everything was ready and you know that you had that done because this is the time and also it was a time for paying money like mm-hmm. Similar, similar to today, uh, everything you're saying, Claude, is exactly the same as now. I'm talking here on the programme at the start about farmers putting stock in over the course of the last week, getting ready. Dairy farmers will be drying off cows now in a few weeks' time. People are paying yeah. bills, they're selling cattle at the end of the year. It's, 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 it's the, the, the comparisons are, are enormous. Are unbelievable. But, and, and I suppose that the thing, it was a time when people paid rents, to, uh, like the rents, to their landlord it was the 1st of May and the 1st of November so these were really important dates they were they were gale days they were called rent days but I mean that's the time when people now you kind of had the money because you've got everything done so you were you were it was time for settling bills and and you know um, and, and paying people because you're finished they're finished the, yeah. the casual labour is finished all the labour has been done and, and the fact that you've so many apples and all these things in that's why we have all the games with apples and everything you've loads of nuts you've got everything in and you've plenty of it and you're going to you're going to use them and let the kids play with as many and, apples and as have they your, want and have your celebration Claude I could genuinely I could sit talking to you for the entire programme <laughs> but unfortunately I'm, I'm just out of time I'm going to say many 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 thanks for joining me great uh, chat there the last few thanks. minutes and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again in the programme yeah, thanks again, MJ. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Claude Doyle there from the Country Life Museum in County Mayo. And isn't it just hugely interesting when you draw all of those synergies between times gone by and between modern times? Really not that dissimilar at all. Uh, so make sure you get your uh, turnip as it was in the past. We use pumpkins now because they're easier to carve. Get them out in the windowsill and ward off all of those evil spirits that are around. Well, maybe not evil, but ward off the spirits that you don't want into your house uh, because there's definitely one or two knocking around the studio here this evening. I'm going to go to a break and I just hope we don't hear this spirit again. (laughs) Country Life on Midlands 103. Brought to you by W. Orshaw Burlington Business Park Tullamore. Supplier of New Holland's tractors in the Midlands. Worshaw.ie And you're welcome back to Country Life here on Midlands 103. Now, we are talking about plant-based protein and we have uh, Head of Crops Research in Chagas, Ewan Mullins on the line. Ewan, many thanks for taking my call this evening. Good evening, MJ. Great to be here. Uh, Very good, Ewan. When I was looking at this press release from yourselves and I saw protein, plant protein on top, I was just presuming this was a push for farmers to grow more protein so we wouldn't be relying, as as reliant, I should say, on on soy or soya. Um, but as I read down through it then, I realised it's a, a push for uh, protein for human consumption. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're in, it's, it's, it's quite an, an ironic situation at the moment where we have food companies in Ireland and across Europe seeking sources of plant-derived protein. And in Ireland and indeed other parts of Europe, we have a fantastic ability to produce plant protein crops as we do all crops. So we've two projects running. One is called U-Protein, and it's about unlocking the value of protein. So look, we, all around the country at the moment, farmers are, are putting beans in the spring. Fantastic crop, as you just said, MJ. 
Um, its primary use is for animal feed. They're, they're great in terms of they fix nitrogen from the air. They're very good for soil conditioning, good for biodiversity. But it's going into animal feed, which is it's a, there's a market there for that, an important market. But we know there's an added premium potential for farmers if that protein is extracted and processed and put into food systems. So that's like what you're looking at is, is basically a protein isolate that then gets put into hundreds, thousands of foodstuffs. So whether it's a beverage, a bar, anything else. And who, at the, say at the moment, uh, you and farmer grows a uh, crop of beans and they're to go for uh, human consumption or they're to be distilled down so they can be put into whatever you, whatever one of those protein drinks or shakes or whatnot. Yeah. Where is this current? Like, is there a processing plant in Ireland that's doing this or one of the bigger, uh, Tierlon or Glambia doing this or does it have to go abroad no. or what's the no. logistics? Yeah, so, and, that, and that, that's the goal of U-Protein is to actually bring the two together, bring the food processors together with the primary producers because we don't have a pilot processing plant in the country at the moment. So within, within U-Protein, what we've seen is that we can do it at, at a micro scale, we can do it at a pilot scale, and now we're up to the, to the lar- larger pilot scale. So it's actually a very efficient process, and, and we know from what we, we, can, we see that actually a lot of the machinery used to extract uh, whey protein from milk and dairy systems is actually a lot of that machinery can be used uh, in terms of using the plant feedstock coming in in the autumn, pulling out the protein, uh, converting it into a flour first of all, and then taking out the protein isolate. And then that's really the, I don't know, we call whey the white gold. The protein isolate from a plant would be called the green gold. Um, and then it goes into food systems. But the key thing is we need a processing plant in the country and these two projects, U-Protein and Valpo, are demonstrating the proof of concept for that. And for farmers growing it then, Ewan, comes down to profitability and whether or not they get paid for, for doing this. What are the numbers saying on a, on a crop like this, Ewan? Yeah, so at the moment, obviously, proteins are, are a very profitable crop for farmers, but it's supported by a protein aid, which is up to, up to about €350 Euro per hectare at the moment. Now, that's a capped sum, a national sum, so as the acreage goes up, that, that sum can drop down. Um, but there is, at the moment, across mainland Europe, what we see are crops like pea, uh, faba bean in Germany, and pea, and lupin as well, commanding pretty good prices. And, and the, the thing there is that that price, which obviously it's variable at the moment, I can't give you an exact figure mm-hmm. on it, but the key thing is that farmers are asking, why can't they get contracts to grow it in mainland Europe? So there is competition to get those contracts so they can sign up to the food processors. So it's it, it's an early stage business even across Europe, but pilot plants, not pilot plants, full processing plants have been invested and built in Denmark, uh, Germany, Hungary, Croatia as well. So there's a lot of investment going into it. Um, and obviously we want to make sure that Irish farmers, because they produce crops so well, um, that they're able to get that primary uh, added value potential as well. And just some basic questions on growing a crop like this. Uh, Ewan, when are you talking about putting it in? When are you talking about harvesting it? What are you talking about in relation to um, fertilizer need or, you know, the, the kind of mechanics of a crop like this? What, what yeah, is it? the logistics. So in terms of faba bean, what they tend to, they like slightly heavier soils. They normally go in by March um, and they would typically be harvested around early September. The key thing with the faba bean is that they don't require fertilizer in terms of N nitrogen going in. There might be a bit of P and K required depending on the soil index that's in on the on the on the fields. And that's obviously a huge saving for a farmer at the moment. And prices have come down, but in the last three years that that was a major plus. The key thing as well, because faba beans are what's called legumes, they actually fix nitrogen from the air so that they can support their own growth and some of that nitrogen then is residual and stays in the soil for the following crop. 
So you get a bounce in the following year's, year's crop in the rotation as well. Um, so it, it is a very, very good crop to have in your rotation. It's a break for cereal diseases. As I said, it's a good, good conditioner for soils, fixes nitrogen, all the flowers, very supportive for bees and insects, etc. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a really important crop. And it's working very well as it is but we can see there's huge potential there to do much more. And that's what, that's what the research is focused on. Yeah, well, surely, I, I suppose the way you're looking, uh, even if you can get it into human nutrition, there's going to be a, a far bigger price to be paid for it by the processing companies. That's, that's the idea, I, I'm guessing, is it? Absolutely. And I mean, they're, they're doing the figures at the moment. The largest, we have one European project that we're leading called Valpropath. And that is... Basically, looking, we've got the largest, two of the largest food companies in Europe in that project. And they wouldn't be in that project unless they saw potential in it. And they're looking at it, they want to look at not only the economics, but they want to look at the, the nutrient traceability so that when the products are, are produced, when that protein isolate is, is processed and put into the food system, that when the consumer picks up the wrapper, they know exactly where the ingredients have come from. And so there's a lot of work going into the sustainability metrics in that project but also building business models because it's, it's, it's well and good for me to be saying, look, there's great potential here. Um, but as you rightly pointed out, what are the figures? What's the sustainability metrics? All these things. This is what the farmer wants to know, but also the consumer wants to know it as well. Yeah, very interesting, Ewan. Uh, very interesting, Anna. It's not uh, going to be the last time we're talking about it, I'd say. There's no question about that. Ewan, I'm going to say many thanks for joining me. I know it was brief, but look, we got to the point there and uh, we will speak again on the programme. Pleasure, MJ. No problem. Uh, Ewan Mullins there from Chagas and uh, the protein uh, that Ewan is speaking about there is going into a lot of uh, powders forms so it's going into you would see people who go to the gym younger people who go to the gym a lot younger people older people people who go to the gym a lot uh, would uh, take uh, protein supplements and pea protein is one of the big ones and there's a massive global market for that that would be where uh, Glanbia would have really, really, really done very well, especially in the North American market with their nutrition businesses over the years. Um, it was it was a lot of protein based products. And uh, if uh, farmers in Ireland could grow for the human nutrition market, the human protein uh, market, there definitely would be more margin there than growing for animal feed. So just an interesting one and we will see how it plays out. Now, coming up after the break, we're talking to Deirdre Murta from Farmophobia. We've talked about farm diversification a lot here on the programme over the last number of years, but we've never spoken to somebody who has turned their farm into a giant scare factory for Halloween, so stay tuned. Country Life on Midlands 103. Brought to you by W. Orshaw Burlington Business Park Tullamore, supplier of New Holland's tractors in the Midlands, worshaw.ie. And you're welcome back to Country Life here on Midlands 103. And it is Pharmaphobia is what we're talking about now. Deirdre Murta from the organisation joins me. Deirdre, many thanks for taking my call this evening. Hello, how are you doing, MJ? We're doing very well, Deirdre. And as I said at the outset of the programme, we have seen a lot of diversification on farms over the years here on the programme, from selling direct to setting up shepherds' huts to pet farms, you name it. But my golly gosh, we have never, ever come across anyone who's done anything like this. Explain to us all, what is pharmaphobia? Well, pharmaphobia is, um, we have a farm here, like the family farm. And uh, we set up five different big team scare zones. We have about 200 actors 
everybody around is great they come and get dressed up make up the whole lot and we scare the living daylights out of people that's our job and that's what we do and what was the background of it Deirdre we'll talk about the mechanics the logistics in a moment it's a massive as you said 200 people it's a massive massive event but who who coined the original idea well we used to run something called Cosy Halloween Experience here so it was kind of a friendly thing on the farm where people would come around and move in groups and we'd scare them a little bit but we'd make them laugh a lot, tell people the history of Halloween and we had kind of awake, there was a fake thing, a whole lot of things. But we kind of noticed that people loved getting scared. So back in 2005, we decided, you know what, we're going to do two events. Instead of the Causey Halloween experience, Causey is the name of the family, has been for over 100 years. We divided it into two. So we have Puka Spooka in the afternoon for children and families. And then in the evenings, we did Pharmophobia, which is really scary, and that we went with the scary thing, and that has been the one that has grown and grown and grown. Now, they they're both really, they both book out every year. <laughs> anyway, we're very lucky. Yes, and Pharmophobia is the big one. That that's my next question, um, uh, Deirdre. For bookings, uh, have you any availabilities left this year, and where exactly are you located? Yes, we're outside between Kells and. That's Boy County Mead, just off on the West Mead border as well, near Clonmelon in West Mead. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some space left on Halloween night, and we're going to run for the two extra nights, the 1st and 2nd of November. There's a bit of space left. Everything until then is completely booked out, I'm afraid. And who who comes up with the ideas? I'm looking here at the attractions. You have Uncaged, uh, Cor- we have, that's Cornered. Where the yeah, Uncaged. Explain to me Uncaged. Uh, Uncaged is a prison of course the hooligans have got out and they're on the whole show and it's very scary <laughs> that's the that's the tough one um, Cornered is literally a corn maze with um, a whole load of hillbillies in chasing you around nod chainsaw or two um, yeah a lot of scary stuff uh, we also have a zombie morgue where you have to the trick with that one is you have to get into the morgue drawer to get into the zombie morgue and you follow through and the spooks are all in there trying to get you um, we have a clown town clown town is uh, full of freaky towns and towns for some reason really scare people and then the last one is the cult and cult is based on the idea that there's it's a long walk outside through fields and um, there's a lot of freaky looking characters with skulls and all sorts trying to find a few more victims anybody and wants to be a victim the simple uh, the simple far from simple the organisation I was going to say the simple task of getting yeah. people getting people organising the logistics when do you start how like how do you even get it all done in time so, well to be honest would you believe we start in February hmm. um, we, if, so we do a big Christmas thing again so as soon as Christmas is all sorted out and put away again we we do start. We have we have two geniuses working all year round on on the Halloween stuff. They're really really skilled at building props and you know using their imagination to come up with the freakiest and scariest things they can. They're excellent, Anthony and Simon. Um, no, it's really good. It's a, it's and it's always a challenge for all of us to try and think of new ideas and um, it's 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 one of the the, the joys of the job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Deirdre, we're going to let you back to it because you're flat to yeah. the mat. It's pharmaphobia.com. I'm on your website. It looks great, I have to say. Fair play to you for coming up with something I mean, like I this. I called from somebody from Mayo yesterday, um, or this morning I was talking to her, and she said, oh, yeah, we didn't arrive up until 10 o'clock at night and we thought we wouldn't get it all up. It was absolutely brilliant. I'm telling everyone about it. I was thinking, she came all the way from Mayo. Yeah. So, yes, it seems to be hitting the spot for people. Thank you very much for the, for the call, Emily. You're, you're, Thank you're you. more than welcome, dear, and we wish you all the best with it. Many, many thanks for joining me here on the programme. OK, bye-bye. 
Uh, Deirdre Murta there from Pharmaphobia. That's pharmaphobia.com. And just have a look even at the website. It looks incredible. Right up my alley. I love stuff like that. And what a great, great, great farm business to diversify into. Not one everybody would do uh, with the simple size, logistics, the, the mechanics of doing it all. But uh, an incredible, incredible experience there for small people and big people alike, especially big people who like to get scared. That is it for this evening's programme. Uh, I just hope that uh, we didn't have any of those pharmaphobia uh, ghouls or ghosts around the studio thereafter. <laughs> no. Oh no, I'm going to have to get out of here as quick as I can tonight. I want to thank everybody who joined me over the course of the last hour. Deirdre Murta there from Pharmaphobia, Ewan Mullins from Chagas, Clodagh Doyle from the Country Life Museum in uh, County Mayo. And if you're down in that neck of the woods, again, well worth a visit. And also Stephen Robb from the Irish Farmers Journal. Uh, I won't be here next week. I'll be back with you in two weeks' time. I'm going to say many thanks for joining me over the course of the last hour. Programme is repeated on Sunday morning, 7am until 8am. Uh, join us wherever you get your podcasts uh, if you type in MJ Space Cleary we will pop up C-L-E-R-Y have a happy Halloween we'll talk to you in a fortnight good night God bless Country Life on Midlands 103 brought to you by W. Orshaw Burlington Business Park Tullamore supplier of New Holland's tractors in the Midlands W. Orshaw.ie.